We're pressing forward in our study of the book of Hebrews, uh, which we've been entitled, Jesus is Better. And we've been looking at all the ways in which that is true throughout all of these various uh, chapters of the book of Hebrews so far, showing, as the writer does, that Jesus is superior to each and every other sort of facet of faith, if you will, that the Hebrew uh, Christians were tempted to believe in. Now, I will just confess to you this morning, the last couple of times we've stepped into Hebrews, I felt like I'm uh, like digging through some weeds, so to speak, theologically. <laughs> uh, there's been a lot of difficult passages to wade through. Uh, what with chapter 5, talking about milk and solid food. Chapter 6, talking about those who fall away. And yet, here again this morning, we find ourselves in the thick of it, I guess you could say, once again. As this particular chapter, chapter number 7 is yet another one of those troublesome texts of Scripture with all kinds of opinions and various ways in which it has been interpreted and various sort of assertions on how to make sense of this particular chapter. And it all centers around this Old Testament figure whose name is Melchizedek. As chapter 7 begins... The writer of Hebrews is finally sort of getting to what he's been wanting to talk about all the way back in chapter number 5. Namely how Jesus is, as he says, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, go with me to chapter 5 just so you can see what he says there. At the beginning of chapter 5, if you remember, he's talking about the priesthood, specifically about Aaron. And he's talking about how Jesus is a better high priest, as he mentioned at the end of chapter 4. And he leans into this. And then at the end of this argument, at the beginning of chapter 5, he says this in verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a priest... After the order of Melchizedek. Now, perhaps like you, I think these Christians in this Hebrew congregation were likely as surprised at this name drop as perhaps you are. Melchizedek is not a familiar name unless you're familiar with the controversy surrounding his name. (laughs) But otherwise, he's a likely obscure figure. Besides Hebrews, besides really chapter 7 specifically, Melchizedek only appears in two other places in the entire Bible. He appears in Genesis chapter 14 in a very historic reference. Then he appears once again in Psalm 110 in a very prophetic reference. And in all, Melchizedek only takes up four verses in the entire Old Testament. Four verses. And yet, he is central. It's so surprising that he takes up so little space because he is central, absolutely critical to what the writers here are arguing for, what he is making contention for, especially in chapter number 7. As we've seen, as we've noted, the writer of Hebrews is trying to show these Christians how foolish it would be for them to resort back to Judaism, to resort back to the law as they were tempted to do. There's all this pressure surrounding it. There's all of this animosity surrounding Jesus and the belief in Jesus and those who were a part of his church. Pressure that resulted often in persecution. And their temptation was to renounce such beliefs and go back into the old beliefs of the law, back into the old beliefs of Judaism. And you can see that's why his point is, Is to show them why Jesus is better. To hold fast 
to what they believe. And it would be one thing if he just sort of put on repeat, Jesus is better, over and over again, which he sort of does. But in an even more truer way, he also seeks to prove how illogical it would be, how nonsensical it would be to go back to those other beliefs at all. He wants them to see that it doesn't, it's not just wrong, it doesn't make any sense to go back to something after believing in the gospel. You cannot default back to law. And that logic is, uh, is on no better display, uh, nowhere else better, I would say, than in chapter number 7. Where he finally gets to what he's been wanting to talk about for so long. Remember, he introduced Melchizedek as we read in chapter 5. But then right after that, notice verse 11 in chapter 5. He says, about this, we have much to say. I have a lot to tell you about how Jesus is better. And he comes from a better order of priests. Even a priesthood after Melchizedek. But he says, it is hard to explain. Because you've become so dull of hearing. (laughs) So from there, verse 11, all the way basically through the end of chapter 6 is a long sort of rabbit trail. A long but necessary sort of diversion into explaining why and how they can get out of their dullness. How they should be able to listen to the words that he's telling them in faith but also in understanding. And he culminates that at the end of chapter 6 where he says this in verse 19. We have this. As a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place. Behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Here his point is going to be fully expounded. Because he's made a case that Jesus is a better priest. He's talked about the priesthood. He's talked about that day of atonement. We referenced that when we went through chapter the beginning of chapter 5. That day of atonement, Leviticus chapter 16. That day once a year when the high priest, the only one who was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, would bring the blood of the Lamb in that place and sprinkle it across the mercy seat. Thereby paying for the sins of the people. And he's making the case here, the writer of Hebrews is making the case that there is a better priest who has done just that. And that better priest is Jesus. And he's done it once for all. And he didn't have to pay for his own sins. That was the the amazing thing if you read Leviticus 16. The high priest who's paying for the sins of the people had to pay for his own sins first. That's why there were two goats. (laughs) As he brought them in, uh, as he walked into that holy place. But not so with this priest. The case he makes for Jesus is that he had no sin to pay for. The only sins that he brings into the holy place are yours. And he pays for them all when one fell swoop. But so as to make it even further of a way in which they can understand. That this priesthood is better than anything they could ever imagine, anything they could ever conceive. He is here going to argue that not only is he better than Levi, and not only is he better than Aaron, and all the priests that followed after them. Jesus is a better priest from a better order. That of the order of Melchizedek. And he elaborates on this by taking us to this historical reference. Notice verse 1 of chapter number 7. For he says right afterwards, for this Melchizedek, 
King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Context, it's key here. Go with me to Genesis chapter 14, that other reference of Melchizedek in our history books, so to speak, in the history of the Old Testament. Genesis 14, interesting little passage. Just to get you some quick uh, sort of summary of the context of what's going on. Abraham and Lot have separated. They've gone their separate ways. Abraham and his nephew Lot. And Lot is now encamped in Sodom. Of course, this is not the the chapter where Sodom and Gomorrah happened. That happens a couple chapters later. But he's in Sodom. And Sodom is besieged by a group of kings that come and they pillage and they take Lot and his family captive. And Abraham hears about this. He hears about the plight that has happened to his nephew and his family. And so he goes on a mission, this is, uh, this, on a mission, so to speak, to get his nephew back. Notice verse 14 of chapter 14. Notice what it says. When Abraham heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went and pursued as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night. And he and his servants defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and he also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions, and the women and the people. So he goes on this revenge tour. He and 318 other guys armed to the gills. They go. They take the revenge on these kings. They rescue Lot. They rescue his family. They rescue all the other captains. They get all their possessions and they start making their way back home. And on his way back home, he just so happens, so to speak, to run into this man, this priest named Melchizedek. Notice verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. A couple of things to note right away. There's lots going on here. As it says, King of Salem. This is often believed to be a reference to Jerusalem, though not called that yet, because Israel didn't even exist yet, so therefore they had not occupied Salem yet. This is Salem before Israel was even a nation. But he's king there. He's king of that city in Canaan. King of Salem, this Melchizedek was, but also he is also priest. Which ought to raise our eyebrows because we know later on in the law that the priest and the king could not be the same person functioning in both roles. And yet here, before the law, before all that other stuff, here, centuries before, we have Melchizedek functioning as both, serving the Most High God. And yeah, even that should raise our eyebrows too. He is in pagan land of Canaan, serving Yahweh truthfully, faithfully as his priest and king. It wasn't just Abram that God was working through. He was also working through others around the world. We read of Abraham because of what God's story is going to tell us. But God had other faithful ones in the world. And here we see it is this one Melchizedek. 
And what's most eye-opening, I think that would be most eye-opening to any Jew perhaps reading about this history, is to note Abraham's deference and the in light of this Melchizedek one standing before him. He shows him the utmost offering of reverence as he gives him a tenth, as he says, of everything. After this great victory that Abraham has over his enemies. This king priest comes out and he speaks this word of blessing over him. Reminding him of the fact that this victory wasn't Abraham's. It was God through him. Working through him. To which Abraham responds, as it says, by giving a tenth. And as the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us, it's a tenth of the spoils. Or literally a tenth of the best things. He's giving him an offering, recognizing Melchizedek's position and status and superiority. Yes, the best of perhaps what Israel has to offer. Abraham, Israel's patriarch, good old father Abraham. Even he bowed in reverence before this king and priest, Melchizedek. He showed him the honor he deserved. He showed him the position that he deserved. And from that, that's all we get of Melchizedek. He disappears from the history books. And yet that's where the writer takes up as his charge this man Melchizedek. Go back with me to Hebrews chapter 7. So you have that scene in your mind. The tenth of everything that Abraham is giving, honoring this king and priest for what he is, for who he is. And notice verse number 2 back in our text, Hebrews 7, 2. And it says, And to him Abraham a portion gave a tenth of everything. He is first, talking about Melchizedek, he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That is literally what Melchizedek means. King of righteousness or king of justice. And then also he is king of Salem. That is king of peace. So he's breaking down his name, telling you exactly what this king is about. This king and priest is about peace and righteousness. And yet he says he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And now, that's where a lot of people stumble. That's where a lot of people have spent a lot of time trying to figure out who this Melchizedek guy, Melchizedek guy is. He has no father or mother. What does that mean? And what does it mean that he doesn't have beginning or, or an ending? And what does it mean that he's a priest forever? These are a lot of confusing, uh, confusing questions. This description of this Melchizedek guy makes it almost appear that he's not a real person. And some have taken that very notion. They've taken this the way that Melchizedek is described. And they try to make this argument that he is some spiritual being. That he's an angel. That, even, that he might even be a pre-incarnate version of Christ. You know like you see in Daniel chapter 3 or Joshua chapter 5. And so on and so forth throughout the Old Testament. Some would argue that Melchizedek is just that. He is a pre-incarnate version. So before Jesus took on flesh in Luke chapter 2. He also appeared in human form in other places in the Old Testament. And some would say that that's what Genesis 14 is. In fact there's entire denominations surrounded by that idea. That Melchizedek is perhaps the true version of Christ. Which is, I think, utterly nonsense. Not to belittle any of those other theories, but I don't put stock in them. I think Melchizedek was a real person. 
A very real person. And what he's describing, what he's not saying here, what the writer is not trying to get you to believe is that Melchizedek was somehow eternal, that he had no parents. This description is not about his person. It's about his priesthood. His priesthood had, goes on forever. And because his priesthood had neither beginning nor ending, that's how he resembles. That's how he is sort of a metaphor for the Son of God himself. How does that make sense? What he tells us in verses 4 through 10. Notice what he says. He explains himself. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Again, he's referencing Melchizedek historically. And those descendants, he says, of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these also descended from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute then. That the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. So what's he saying? In Judaism, under the law, those who, only those who descended from Levi were allowed to hold the priesthood. There were strict regulations, really strict safeguards that were put in place. To protect the priesthood from any other bloodline, any other tribe. It was only the tribe of Levi. You can read about in Numbers 3 and even in Ezra. If you could prove the fact that you were belonging to that family, that tribe, you belonged in the line of priests. Which is to say that the priesthood under the law was a matter of inheritance. You received it from your father and your father before him. You received this office as a matter of inheritance because it was codified in the law. It was a legal requirement stipulating who was and wasn't allowed to function in that role. But, as the writer is here trying to say, Melchizedek inherited this role from no one. He didn't become a priest because of his father, because of who his father was, or because of who his mother was. He didn't belong to Levi. Levi hadn't even yet been born. (laughs) Levi was a couple of generations away from even being a thought. So he's saying that he is a priest who didn't inherit the role of priesthood by the legal requirements of the law, nor did he pass it on to anyone else. So you could say that Melchizedek's priesthood, his order of priests, started and stopped with him. That's kind of how it goes on forever. He is the only Melchizedekian priest, if you can say it that way. And yet, even though there is no law, no genealogical tie, there's no family ties that are making Abraham do what he did, he shows honor to Melchizedek as the premier priest of the Most High God. As the writer has just said, he shows the fact that the inferior is blessed by the superior. He's recognizing that there is a better priesthood that was in Melchizedek. And what's more, as he's going to say, so too did Levi in a way. Look at verse 9. I like his argument here. He says, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. 
He's saying basically that Levi was in Abraham biologically before he was born. Which is just to say that Levi's deference to Melchizedek was paid for by his great-grandfather, Abraham. Which is just to say the entire order of Levitical priests in Abraham showed deference to a better priest. That's is what he's trying to argue for. All of this sort of history, all of this genealogy, all of this theology comes to a head right here. Because his argument has been what? If you, if you are clinging to the institution of the priesthood, if you are trying to say that, no, we don't need Jesus, we don't need the gospel, we can go back to the way in which it was before. We can go back to Judaism, we can establish the new sacrifices of the temple, we can do all of that again. He's saying, basically, if you're clinging to that, you're clinging to a wholly inferior way of how to make yourselves right with God. You're clinging to an inferior institution if you're clinging to Levi, if you're clinging to that priesthood. Because as good as it was, as right as it was, as God-ordained as that was, Judaism in and of itself could save no one. It couldn't save you by itself. It was not an institution of, about bringing salvation. It was about pointing you to a savior. But the priesthood itself was unable to do it. The law itself was unable to do it. And that was baked into it from the start. After all, as the writer says, why else would there be a prophecy of another priest from another order to come after Aaron? As he says in verse number 11, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? What would be the point of that? Why would there be another prophecy of another priest to come after if, yes, Aaron and his priesthood, Levi and his priesthood, were the ultimate realization of what God wanted to do? If that was the fulfillment, if that's the sort of full realization of God's purposes through the priesthood, why would there be any need for any other priest? Well, there wouldn't be. You see, that's his point. As it is, God's word has promised that another priest would come. And this priest would come after the order of Melchizedek. That is a prophecy that appears in Psalm 110. You can read about it if you want to. You don't have to turn there. Psalm 110, a very short psalm. But in fact, it's the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. And only four or five verses. Jesus makes reference to it over and over again. Some 20 times it appears in the New Testament, Psalm 110 does. Making it the most important, of, I think, of all the Psalms to understand as it points us to who Jesus is. To points us to what his identity is. He's the king of the most high, but he's also priest of the most high. Who has come to fully realize every single promise of Yahweh. And throughout the Gospels, that's why Jesus, when he references Psalm 110, it's almost like he's pointing a finger back at himself. He has to say, I'm the dude. I'm that guy. I'm the king and priest. Because that's who he is. Jesus is the king and priest of Yahweh who had come to bring about all that God had spoken. And with that, the writer is taking up this same line of reasoning. The same line of reasoning that Jesus would talk about. Here, the writer of Hebrews is saying the same thing. 
that Jesus is that priest from a better order, bringing about a better hope. Notice verse 12. For when there is a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him. You are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. You see what he's saying? Just like Melchizedek. Who didn't inherit his priesthood. Because of who his father was. Because of some genealogical tie. That was a part of the law. Jesus. He didn't inherit his priesthood either. From his father. He didn't belong to Levi. He belonged to the tribe of Judah. He didn't assume the role of priest because of some legal requirement. He assumed the role because of who he is. He is God in the flesh. He's the son of God come down to us in order to represent us before God the Father. And when he comes, he inaugurates an entirely new order. As he says, look at verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. Through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn... And will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. The old way. The old way of priests. And making yourself right with God. By following all these rites and these rituals. That was set aside. uh, Because of Christ. He and when he comes. As it says in verse 12. He establishes a new law. A new way. A new and better hope. Because he is the new priest The old way is set aside because of its weakness. It couldn't make you righteous. It could point you to the one who could. In a new and a living way. A better hope. As he is here saying. Is opened up to us. Because of Jesus. And because of him. Those who draw near to God. Not on the basis of a law. But on the basis of an oath. Or we could say on the basis of a promise. That's how we draw near. And who do we have to guarantee that this promise is true? Verse 22, God in the flesh. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. He's the underwriter. The one who is sort of sponsoring this promise. The one who is making sure that we can know that the one who is going to make the promise is going to live up to the promise is Jesus himself. He's the yes and the amen of all of God's promises. The one through whom all of them come true. So what the priests of Levi under the law could not do, Jesus does. He brings about perfection. He brings about true righteousness through his complete and finished atonement by which every sinner can find salvation. He on the cross is thereby functioning as both, both priest and offering at the same time. 
That's what he's going to get into in chapter 8, so I shouldn't get ahead of myself. And as a priest, he continues as priest forever, as he says. This is in contrast to the other ones. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. All the other priests who've gone before you, they've all died. They've all had their priesthood end because they're human. They're of the flesh. They don't live forever. So when Joe Schmo, he's priest and he dies, he hands it off to Joe Schmo Jr. And he becomes priest and so on and so forth. But not so with Jesus. Not so with him because though he died, he rose again. His claim to the priesthood, therefore, is what? As he said back in verse 16, it's not on the basis of some legal requirement under the law. It's what? An indestructible life. Resurrection. You want to know what his claim is to being the priest of the Most High God? It's because he's God who himself, coming to flesh, dying for you, rising again. His life is indestructible. And like Melchizedek, Jesus' priesthood wasn't inherited from someone else. And it also wasn't transferred to someone else. You don't have to go through a priest to find atonement. You need no other mediator. There's no other person on this planet who needs to represent you before God. You have a representative in Jesus right now. And the priestly order of Jesus starts and stops with Jesus. He holds his priesthood permanently. Look at what he says again. The former priests were many in number, verse 23, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. It's not just a metaphor. That's reality. That's what's going on right now. As he says in verse 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is doing that right now. At this very split second, Jesus is serving as your priest before the most high God of the universe. Have you ever thought about that? He's interceding for you. Unlike any other priest, before or after him, Jesus' priestly service has never come to an end. It's never ceased. His whole life was one of intercession, speaking on behalf of someone else. That's what it means to intercede. You're speaking, you're representing, you're speaking on behalf of someone else. And as he says here, Jesus always lives to make intercession for You. He's interceding on your behalf. And he was doing this his whole life. He was your priest. He was your representative in his perfect life, in his perfect death, in his perfect resurrection. And he is your perfect priest right now, perfectly representing you before God. In every single way, he's your perfect priest. As he says in verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness. 
as high priest, but the word of the oath, the word of the promise, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made priest forever. He is always serving as high priest of heaven, showing the Father what your atonement cost. You see, that's why your salvation can be to the uttermost, as he says in verse 25. Uttermost. Complete. It is the absolute extent. Your salvation goes all the way. It's an absolute salvation. This is a salvation that Jesus is here giving. That's not part of the way. Not some of the way. Not just most of the way. Not 99% of the way to being saved. That's not Jesus' offering. It is 100% all the way salvation that he offers because of who he is. He is Jesus Christ. The high priest of God. The king of heaven. And when you believe, when you have faith in Jesus Christ, that's what's happening. You're falling under new representation. No longer are you represented by an imperfect representative who sinned just like you. When you believe in Jesus, your representative before God the Father is none other than God's perfect Son, your great high priest. Who is like you in every way, yet without sin. You see, that's what's happening when we believe. You get new representation. That's why you can see the writer's argument. It would be folly. It would be the height of folly to fall away from that announcement, from that promise. Because you're not just falling away from some doctrine. You're falling away from someone perfectly representing you in glory. It would be to forfeit this perfect representation. If you were to revert to anything else or to, to something other than, other than Jesus. You see, when Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through him, I think he has this in mind. He's talking about himself as the priest who would allow everyone to come to the Father because of what he does. And folks like to squirm and squibble and they don't like how definitive, they don't like how exclusive that saying is. That Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life and no one can come to God except through him. We don't like how exclusive that sounds. Doesn't that sound overly bigoted and restrictive? Jesus is the only way to God because he's the only one who could represent you in perfection. Every other religion you might try, any other system of faith, no matter what it is, what it looks like, you know what it's going to offer you? It's not going to offer you what the gospel offers. It's going to offer you a series of ways that perfection can be won by you, can be earned by you. Every other system belief is always about you making yourself better so you can have and represent yourself before the God, whoever it might be, and you can do so in a way that gets you clean, that gets you in. Your position in the good place, so to speak, is dependent upon you doing a certain number of things to make yourself better. That is not the gospel. The gospel is what? That Jesus' perfection has been given to you. As a gift of pure grace. That's what he comes to establish. That those who believe. When they believe. 
They're falling under the representation of Christ, the high priest, who stands before the Father. And he shows them his hands, and he shows the Father his side, and says, This one is one that I bought. The hope of the gospel is the promise of total salvation of your soul. Based entirely on the fact that Jesus represents you and that representation continues even to this day, even to this very moment. For sinners and saints alike, Jesus is standing before God the Father. We could, sing, we could have sung that song, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. <laughs> Who is making the plea for us? Not us. Jesus is. You know, there's hardly a day that goes by when I'm not reminded of how sinful I am. Perhaps you can say the same. There's probably not a day that goes by when you're not constantly reminded of how much you struggle, how weak you are, how sinful you are, how, how trained your mind is to go towards sin. It's constant. The true north of the human heart Yes, it's towards sin. We almost can't seem to forget how far short we've fallen of God's glory. How much we've failed. But you know what makes the good news so good? Is that Jesus has never once gotten tired of representing you before that throne. Jesus is not annoyed when he has to go before the throne and once again show the God the Father his hands and his side and say, that's one I've bought. It is his delight. It is his glory. He ever lives to intercede for you. It's not a chore for him. It's not a chore for God to see his son, to see the wounds which have paid for your redemption. That's what it means. He ever lives to make intercession for you. That's what he's doing right now. Though you might keep on sinning and keep on sinning and you might keep on failing and you might keep on tripping yourself up over the sins that you cannot seem to get over. What is happening in heaven for you? You have a priest who is pleading on your behalf. And where the law might only see your sin, what does God see? God sees the scars of his son. Your salvation is secure because of your priest. It's not some man. It's the God man. It is Jesus Christ. And that work of redemption abides forever. Because he is your priest forever. So you see, again, that's why we can come all the way back to chapter number 6 at the end where it talks about that anchor, the anchor of our faith, the bedrock of our hope is what? Is this priest doing what we could not do and standing before the Father in perfection and his perfection spills off of himself, spills out of his side and out of his hands and onto us and we are made perfect because of him. And he's ever standing in that spot for us. That's Jesus. That's your priest. You know, if you you don't believe in Jesus this morning, you know who's representing you before God the Father, the only true God of the universe? You are. All the 
Things that you hope to accomplish, all the things that you want to do, all the things that you're hoping make you right with God. You're the only one that stands before God at that judgment seat. But you know what faith does? Faith, again, as I said, brings you under new representation. Where you are no longer the one standing before that bar of heaven. Trying to show God your goodness. Trying to show God all the ways you've done good. Look at the things I've accomplished, God. Look at the ways in which I've done, uh, been a good person. To people trying to represent themselves in glory, you know what Jesus says? You know what God the Father says? Turn from me, I never knew you. The saddest words in Scripture. Where he tells those who say, look what I've done. Look at all the things that I've done. Lord, Lord, haven't I done this in your name? And Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me. Only those who are under representation of the great high priest and king himself, Jesus, are those who are welcomed into glory with those words, well done. Good and faithful servant. My friends, this is the matter of eternity. Who is representing you? Are you trying to make your own sort of resume represent yourself with how good you are, with all the good things that you've tried to do and how moral you've been, how ethical you've tried to be? Or is the one who is righteousness himself the one who is the king of righteousness and the king of peace, the priesthood of our faith, is he representing you? My friends, there is only one way to everlasting life. It is not through yourself. It is through this priest. He is the way, the truth, and the eternal life. Let us pray.